Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Joshua Matz, one of the authors, along with Lawrence Tribe, of the new book, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, unfortunately, Lawrence couldn't join us, um, but you're here, and I'm just wondering if you could tell us how you guys came to write this book on this topic in this moment. It's not the first one you've written together, but I'm wondering why you decided to co-write this book. Well, we ended up deciding to write the book in early 2017. By that point, it was already pretty clear that talk about impeachment and calls for impeachment were going to be a recurring theme of the Trump presidency. This was certainly true in light of his sustained violation of the emoluments clauses, but also because his conduct during his first few months in office, as you may recall, just set many Americans rocking back on their heels in alarm. And so by that point, we had a sense that there would be a need for greater public understanding of how impeachment works, what its appropriate uses are, when it's not a good idea to impeach, and how that would interact with the politics of our moment. And that was really the impetus to write the book. We just thought People are going to be talking about this power. It isn't well understood, and we can hopefully play a role in helping to remedy that gap. When you were doing your research, what were some of the biggest misconceptions when you were either looking at the way the media was covering the Trump presidency and the idea of impeachment, or whether you were interacting with just average citizens? I think there were three main misconceptions that helped drive the desire to write the book. The first was that people just didn't have a clear sense of what conduct by the president can justify impeachment. Some folks think that you need evidence of an indictable criminal offense, which you don't, or they believe that when the president is exercising his official executive powers, he can't be impeached for the way he does so, which is false or they believe that the president's motivation for why he has used the power that he has is irrelevant, which is also false. So that was one main misconception, was just a lack of understanding of what impeachment is for. The second misconception that we had in mind in writing the book related to the consequences of an impeachment. We would hear all the time from folks you know, in the resistance, the hashtag resistance, you know, if we impeach him, does that mean that Hillary Clinton becomes president or that we have a special election or that Neil Gorsuch is removed from the Supreme Court or that everything that's happened since he took office is undone? And there was this sense that impeachment had become not just a means of addressing an out-of-control president, but for some people, it was sort of a magic wand that would solve all of the various ills that in their mind afflicted American society since Donald Trump became president. And we were concerned with providing a much more realistic accounting of the limited, although very important, role that impeachment can play. The third and final misconception that really stuck with us was that a lot of folks had this feeling that you can impeach and that's it. There wasn't a lot of thought about what comes next, about what the political circumstances are, about what the implications may be of filling national political discourse with impeachment talk at a time when it's very clear that there isn't a political majority to go ahead with an impeachment at all. And so we really wanted to clarify the follow-on implications of an impeachment and the political circumstances that can actually make it not just possible, but also wise to use that power. 
Now, my circumstances may be different than many of my listeners in that I am a journalist. Uh, specifically, I cover you know, legal type news. So I feel as though I'm inundated every day with lots of breaking news, lots of changes, and that I am experiencing time in a different way. The time is speeded up. So I did wonder when I first picked up the book, I thought, oh, well, you know, you would have had to turn in your manuscripts. And as you say in the book, you turned it in in March. But so much could happen even by the time, you know, the book actually was published. How did you approach acknowledging what had happened up to that point in the Trump presidency without making it really time dependent? With trepidation. This was a real concern for us. We started writing the book in July of 2017. We researched and wrote the bulk of the draft between July and January, which for anyone out there who writes for a living, that is an extraordinarily aggressive pace. Uh, And we were both working day and night around the clock to get the draft completed. And then from January to March, it went through a number of rounds of edits before going off to be printed, during which time we had the chance to account for late-breaking news. But we were very aware throughout the entire process that the day after we published the book, you know, special counsel Mueller could publish a report or some incredible new story could come out or the president might make some astonishing admission on Twitter or on national TV or that people who we refer to by their titles in the book could be fired. And so in thinking about those questions, we tried to minimize the dependency of our book on the facts as we knew them and to talk about the impeachment power in a way that can really last for generations. And so only maybe 10% of the book is really linked to Trump specifically. And in those sections, we are very conscious of and speak very frankly about the position that we were in and the moment of time in which we were writing and tried to identify which facts that we knew to be the case and which facts remained uncertain. And just to ground my Modern Law Library listeners, you and I are having this conversation on July 10th. So that is what we know at this current point in time. Have there been any major developments since the book was published that in any way changed your mind on any of the recommendations or predictions that you did feel comfortable making when you published? To be honest, no. Uh, That may be partly because we were careful on the predictions and conclusions that we offered. But, you know, when we wrote the book, there had been a massive surge in talk about removing or ending the presidency through the 25th Amendment uh, on the ground that the president lacked the mental capacity to exercise the powers of his office. We were extraordinarily skeptical of that and say so at great detail in the final chapter of the book. That wave of interest in the 25th Amendment seems largely to have passed And then with respect to the specific alleged impeachable offenses that Trump may or may not have committed, I think in the book we correctly identified what the key issues are likely to be, and there simply remains a great deal of factual uncertainty and a great deal of confusion over whether the political will to address the president's abuses of power will materialize. Uh, And if anything, since the book came out, I've become even more skeptical that a majority of the American people, a sufficiently large majority, will recognize and rally against Trump's abuses of power, no matter how extraordinary they are, because we see on an almost weekly basis 
stories that in most presidencies would have consumed months of national outrage. Uh, we see stories like that, you know, flash and fizzle in an eight-hour period under this presidency. And it's not clear that the capacity exists to maintain the attention span uh, that you would need to muster the political consensus in favor of thwarting the president in some of his most extreme abuses of power. Now, I want to change courses because I don't want to give our listeners an incorrect idea of what this book is. As you said, you certainly don't shy away from looking at impeachment in terms of the current administration of Donald Trump. But one of the things I appreciated was the in-depth analysis of different historical time periods in which impeachment was proposed, used as a cudgel, or oddly kind of abandoned as a concept for a number of years. And one of the the stories that I found really fascinating that I had not previously encountered was about President John Tyler, who I have devoted in my life maybe five minutes to thinking about. And so this story was very interesting to me. Could you please tell our listeners about the presidency of John Tyler and how impeachment factored into the debate during his time? Of course. You know, and part of the reason that we like the John Tyler story just as background is that so often talk about impeachment it really boils down to a discussion of the Johnson, Clinton, and Nixon cases. And American history is actually littered with these incredibly fascinating stories in which threats of impeachment or credible efforts to achieve impeachment played a significant role in presidential politics. And the Tyler story is a clear example of that. He came to office you know, upon the death of uh, William Henry Harrison, and he was nominally a member of the Whig Party, uh, which controlled Congress, but he wasn't really a Whig. He had come into office essentially on a compromise ticket. And once he took power, he started vetoing left and right almost everything that the Whigs in Congress were passing on some of what were at the time the most important economic issues facing the federal government. This generated extraordinary outrage. And it eventually led the Whigs to conclude that the only way forward was to keep passing bills at an aggressive clip, force Tyler to veto all of them, and then to bring articles of impeachment against him for abuse of the veto power. Uh, and the issue reached ahead when a committee in the House was commissioned to write a report explaining that abuse of the veto power would provide sufficient grounds for impeachment. That report astonished President Tyler, who correctly responded that mere policy disagreements or disagreements over the direction of national political and economic affairs would not justify impeachment under the standards set forth in the Constitution, which requires high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, and in the end, the issue all became a moot point because the Whigs were swept from power completely in the midterm elections, and the Democrats rose to control, and they, they certainly had no interest in impeaching the president. Uh, but for the rest of his presidency, Tyler was aggressively checked and balanced by Congress, not through the threat or the, the initiation of impeachment, but rather through ordinary means of controlling a president with whom one disagrees. And I'd like to get a little deeper into that. In the book, there's a quote where you say that Congress is a tiger we pretend is made of paper. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. So often in the national discourse, and I've certainly seen it within the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years, we act as though impeachment is the tool that the legislature has to use against the executive. Could you talk a little bit about the non-impeachment methods that Congress has 
to control what it sees as bad actions by the executive? Happily. I mean, you know, the Constitution vests the impeachment power in Congress. And so for an, in order for the power to be activated, a majority of the House and then a supermajority of the Senate need to conclude that ending a presidency in that manner is the appropriate response to a course of presidential conduct. One of the virtues of the impeachment power having been given to Congress is that in the face of presidential wrongdoing, it's not kind of impeach or nothing. Congress has many other tools to engage with and to try to defuse a presidency that it thinks has gone off the rails, with impeachment being the most extreme. And when you think about what those tools are, you know, it can pass legislation and just change what the law is. It can use its power of the purse to fund or defund presidential programs or initiatives that may relate to the concern about presidential wrongdoing. It can use its control over personnel to ensure that people of integrity are within the executive branch and that the president can't pack it with cronies and minions who will aid and abet his abuses of power. Congress can use its oversight and investigatory power to discover documents within the executive branch and release them to the public or to compel executive branch officials to explain in a public forum what happened and why it happened. And then Congress can use the protections of the speech and debate clause to make public statements and to release confidential information into the public record. Congress can also help organize and trigger other checks and balances around the executive. When Congress makes clear that it is concerned about what the president has done, that may embolden courts to exercise the power of judicial review more robustly, and it may encourage journalists and the forces of civic society and the political institutions of American life to respond accordingly. And so, you know, there's a sense and an understandable one that Congress is frozen by dysfunction and is consumed by rank partisanship. And, and certainly the Republicans in Congress under Trump have done very little to dispel that impression. But at the end of the day, if you need someone to stand up to the president, the courts can only do so much. And frankly, even the states and national political majorities can only do so much in the short term. The big beast in the room, the entity in the federal government that really has the power to address an out-of-control president is Congress. Uh, and at the end of the day, it either is willing to use that power or it's not. And impeachment is certainly an option on the table in truly extraordinary cases. But most of the time, less extreme measures are probably sufficient. And let's get into that a little bit, because the founders did vest all of these powers in Congress but they still felt it necessary, or a majority of them felt it necessary, to include the power of impeachment. And you mentioned Ben Franklin framed this as almost an escape valve to avoid the kinds of assassinations that took place, say, in Europe against aristocracy when there was no way to remove a ruler. You know, Franklin was concerned that there be another method, a non-deadly method such as this. But what was the conversation when the founders said, well, we've given all these powers to Congress, but we also want this extra thing. We also want impeachment. What made them decide to include impeachment? Well, the question you're asking really touches on two issues. One question is why have an impeachment power at all? And the second is why did they give it to Congress? Because those two questions were in their mind closely linked. So the big issue that they started with is whether to have an impeachment power. The vast majority of the framers thought from the very beginning of the Constitutional Convention that you had to. They were creating a newly empowered federal government. They were creating an energetic chief executive at the helm of it. 
And they understood that there needed to be an escape hatch if something went terribly awry, either because the nation misfired and who it selected, or because someone came to office and was then corrupted by the opportunities that it presented. And so the framers, uh, after lengthy debate and deliberation, realized that you know, if you don't allow impeachment, either the nation could go horribly off the rails or that there would be a serious risk of coup or revolution uh, or even assassination. And that was where Franklin made this point. And it was a good one. You know, at the time, you know, as far as the framers were concerned, the history of failed leaders in Western civilization was a bloody history. There hadn't been mechanisms provided for the peaceful political removal of a leader whose conduct imperiled the nation as a whole and was inconsistent with the rule of law as then understood. And so by creating the impeachment mechanism, the framers wanted to avoid what they saw as the mistakes of the past and allow there to be a powerful president who could be checked and balanced even in the most extreme case. And that was why they turned to Congress. The main arguments against allowing impeachment weren't that you know, every president will be perfect and so we don't have to worry. The main argument was that if you allow anybody to remove the president from office, that entity will control him. And the power to end the presidency would ultimately become the power to cripple and override the chief executive. And so it was only after lengthy debate and deliberation that the framers both concluded that you needed to have impeachment and that you could construct it with enough safeguards, including a supermajority vote in the Senate, to ensure that it wouldn't be used willy-nilly and would still preserve the independence of the presidency most of the time. Now, with this tool, certainly partisanship is not a new thing in American history. So one question may be, particularly for people like, you know, you and like me, I turned 18 a couple months before the impeachment hearings of President Bill Clinton. So I've spent my entire adult life uh, with impeachment always feeling kind of on the table. So I guess the question that I had going into this book, and that I think maybe my readers would have, if this is a power, if there is partisanship and a will to use impeachment or a desire to end a presidency under so many different presidents, why is this a tool that has not been fully deployed? There have been impeachments that happened in the House, but they did not pass the Senate. Why have we never impeached a president? For what it's worth, I think Nixon would have been impeached and removed from office uh, if he had not resigned in August of 1974. But otherwise, it's a great question. You know, why, why hasn't impeachment occurred more frequently? There are a few reasons for that. The first is that, to their credit, the nation's political leaders have recognized most of the time and in most contexts that impeachment is an extraordinary remedy with the potential to unleash all kinds of chaos and disruption, and they've shied away from it when they believe that there are other less extreme measures that will suffice to restrain a president who they believe is out of control. A second part of the story is that for a good part of American history, impeachment was just seen as disreputable. Following the effort to remove Andrew Johnson from office in the 1860s, many contemporaries took the lesson that that impeachment effort was unduly partisan and that impeachments would too often be infected by partisanship. And following that experience from the 1860s until about the 1950s, 
impeachment almost completely disappeared from serious discussion of politics at the national level. It emerged only glancingly on a few extreme occasions and never caught traction. And it wasn't until President Truman fired General MacArthur and then seized the steel mills that impeachment sentiment emerged on the scene. Understandably so, given that Truman was exceedingly unpopular, that his political opponents were well-organized, and that he had in fact committed outrageous uses of power with respect to seizing steel mills during the Korean War. And then I think a third and final part of the explanation for why impeachment has been so rare is that the supermajority requirement in the Senate is just daunting. And the vast majority of the time, it's been clear that even if you could muster a majority of votes in the House of Representatives to bring articles of impeachment against a president, there would be virtually no chance of that impeachment effort succeeding in the Senate and actually resulting in the president's removal from office. And in light of that, political leaders have recognized that it would be imprudent and indeed irresponsible to invoke and activate the highly disruptive impeachment power when removing the president isn't a plausible political endgame. And so instead, they've relied on the other checks and balances that we talked about earlier. Now, several different times during the book, you reference the myth of the boy who cried wolf, and you raise that as a danger for waving around impeachment too frequently. And I, I was reminded of a, of a quote, I believe, by Rebecca Solnit back in 2014, where she says, you know, the story of Cassandra, the woman who told the truth but was not believed, is not nearly as embedded in our culture as that of the boy who cried wolf. So as a theoretical problem, what are the dangers not of using impeachment too liberally, but of waiting too long to deploy impeachment as a method of removing a president? Well, certainly in this political moment, I think there are a lot of people more concerned with the myth of Cassandra than the myth of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, mm -hmm. And partly for that reason, we really emphasize the dangers of crying wolf on impeachment. But you're right. There are, you know, when a president is out of control, when a president is using their powers in a tyrannical manner and in a way that threatens the underpinning of our democracy itself, there are real threats that we have to take seriously. I mean, it's sort of hard to answer the question because the dangers of failing to impeach an out-of-control president are as diverse as the different ways in which a president can be out of control. And so a lot of it would depend on exactly what the president was doing wrong. In my mind, perhaps the most extreme worry is this one. A president who abuses their power may tend to do so in ways that undermine the democratic process itself, that make it harder to vote, that make it seem less necessary to hold elections as scheduled, that enhances tribalism and partisanship in ways that make people lose faith in the shared democratic process and just view themselves as one member of a warring tribe that needs to maintain power at all costs. When that happens, when a president who is abusing their power is disrupting the democratic system and undermining faith in democracy and making party and personal allegiance seem more important than faith in the Constitution, then you reach a point where impeachment may become impossible. Because as I've mentioned multiple times, impeachment requires a measure of cross-partisan political consensus. You cannot successfully remove someone from office unless you have a majority of the House and a supermajority of the Senate. And so if you delay impeachment on the theory that other measures may suffice, and you allow the president to remain in office long enough 
to introduce enough division and discord into the constitutional and the democratic system, it may be impossible, even when impeachment is obviously justified, it may be impossible to muster the cross-political will that you need to actually make it happen. And that's where you enter a circumstance in which the power that you need to save our democracy has been rendered unavailable by a breakdown in the democratic system itself. To switch gears a little bit, I had a question when reading this book, just knowing that, you know, Lawrence Tribe, I believe he was born in 1941, and I'm not entirely sure of your age, but I believe that you are of the millennial generation. You're both constitutional scholars, you're both lawyers, but you do come from different generations. When you were approaching this topic, did you notice different outlooks or perspectives on the topic of impeachment just because of the environment in which you each had grown up and begun to practice law? Absolutely. You know, Larry Tribe is, in some ways, in my mind, you know, a walking embodiment of constitutional law. He forgets more constitutional law in any given month than I know entirely. And even more than that, he was there for the Clinton and the Nixon impeachments. He played uh, not an especially active role in the Nixon case, but was a major player in public debate uh, and congressional testimony surrounding the Clinton impeachment effort. And so in a way that just, you know, isn't true for me, you know, I read these things as history. He was there. He lived it. He understood what it was like to be a constitutional lawyer and scholar in the middle of an active effort to end the presidency through the impeachment power. And that was an invaluable perspective. What was in some ways unexpected to me was that, you know, I think in these sorts of things, it's often the hot-tempered young buck and the, and the older lawyer who's been seasoned by experience, you know, and who tends to have a calmer, level-headed approach. You know, Larry is definitely, he has very strong feelings about the Trump presidency. He expresses them early and often uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. And started off the project temperamentally a bit more open to the good of impeachment, not just as to Trump, but in general, and to a sense that it would be healthy in our democratic system if impeachment were a more active and dynamic part of it. Whereas I have a much stronger Burkean impulse and tend to be much warier of that kind of radical disruption. Uh, and I tend to think that right now our system is overheating with forces of tribalism and partisanship uh, and informational segregation, tearing people apart rather than allowing them to find ways to pull together. And I worried a lot more that impeachment would pull society further apart rather than mend it and help us find our way to a common purpose. And over the course of writing the book, those competing perspectives helped us find a middle ground in which we could talk passionately about the importance of impeachment as well as the dangers of impeachment. And I think Larry and I both engaged in a dialectic that's reflected in the book and that hopefully readers will also find interesting. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If our listeners are interested in either purchasing to end a presidency, the power of impeachment, or in reaching out to you or to Lawrence Tribe, how could they do so? Do you have any social media presence or blogs that they could access? Oh, you know, if, if you Google us, I'm sure you can easily find my work email address at Gupta Wessler uh, and at Kaplan and Company, and you can find Larry's email address at Harvard Law School. Uh, and we're both active on Twitter. You know, if you Google us and, and search for us, I'm sure you'll find us very easily. And we'd certainly love to hear from folks who've read the book. And do you have any other projects in the works, either, you know, with Larry or on your own? 
uh, no big uh, writing projects at the moment. I like to think that having written the two books with him over the last four years gives me just a bit of an opportunity to get back to my legal practice, where I'm actively involved in the emoluments cases. Uh, I was involved in litigation challenging the travel ban. Uh, I'm now involved in cases challenging the president's ban on military service by transgender people. Uh, and I think there's you know, short of impeachment, there's a lot that can be done and should be done to prevent this president from using his power in ways that harm and stigmatize the most vulnerable amongst us. Well, Joshua, thank you again. My guest has been Joshua Matz, co-author of To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.